The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 16th day of August, 2013. Welcome to episode 277 of The Corbett Report podcast, But what about the roads? It is perplexing just how often this particular question comes up when one begins advocating for a truly free society. It's not only perplexing because it's easy enough to answer this question, but the very frequency with which this question, this objection to a free society is raised, is perplexing in and of itself. It's almost as if somehow in that 15,000 hours of government-enforced indoctrination that we go through in the public school system in our youth, we are drilled into, we have drilled into us from a very early age the idea that, of course you can't have something such as a road system that actually functions without having a centralized gang of thugs wearing hats and shiny badges proclaiming to be something called the government with a monopoly on the initiation of force within a geographical area that points a gun at people heads in order to take money from them in order to fund the military-industrial complex and other things that they don't want in the name of democracy or whatever the prevailing mythology of the day is. It is bizarre just how frequently this particular question comes up. So why don't we go straight head-on into this question today? Because I know it is one that a lot of people have, and I know a lot of people simply cannot conceive of how a society without a centralized gang of thugs called a government could possibly function, and how it could possibly provide roads to people who want them. Uh, it shouldn't be that difficult for us to to come up with some answers to this, and luckily enough, it isn't. So we will be going through that today, and I can almost guarantee you that if you have ever posed this question, or if you have ever had this niggling doubt in the back of your mind when pondering a truly free society, I can almost guarantee you that by the end of today's episode, you are going to be thinking about this issue in a fundamentally different manner than you are right now. So why don't we roll up our sleeves and get to work on this? And I think the first thing that we have to do is tackle head-on one of the fundamental misconceptions about free societies and how they function. Because it is something that I hear constantly from people, even though it is absolutely 100% a canard, a total 100% fabrication that does not apply. What I'm referring to is the objection that in a free society where people have private property that is privately maintained and privately owned, well, then obviously, then something like a private road system would be maintained and operated by Uncle Moneybags from the Monopoly uh, game, that, that type of caricature, for profit, and thus it would be inherently evil. Well, disregarding the argument that anything that's run for profit is inherently evil, which I think is a cartoon version of economics that understandably appeals to the young and inexperienced, but uh, is, uh, well, that's a different argument altogether. But even leaving that aside for the moment, 
it is fundamentally important for us to understand that in a truly free society, there is nothing whatsoever and no one whosoever who can come along and prevent a group of like-minded, concerned individuals from voluntarily coming together to create a non-profit organization to provide any conceivable service, structure, or function that the government currently provides at the point of that gun that they use and that initiation of force that they claim to have. So without all of that, the gun in the room, people can come together voluntarily to create a non-profit organization that would, for instance, provide road services. And for anyone who thinks this is a bizarre or ridiculous idea, that couldn't happen in a free society. Well, even in our non-free society, in which there is that centralized gang of thugs known as government, we already do have exactly this type of uh, service being provided. So that, for example, there already exists private roads that you may not even know are private, but that are are generally provided by homeowners associations uh, throughout the United States and other countries around the world have homeowners associations that provide and maintain and upkeep roads through homeowners fees that are charged to people living in the area for the, the maintenance and upkeep of the roads that provide access not only to those people, but of course anyone visiting those people. It's a service that is universally recognized to be very useful, so usually people have no problem with that being part of their homeowners fees. And that is just one tiny example of how this can be done. And this is, a, again, a very important concept to be understood. Any service that we can think of right now that people think is important for to, to be provided to the people at the point of a gun by government could be provided in a free society by non-profit organizations that are created by people who actually do care about these issues. And just as you don't want to see people starving to death on the street, and just as I don't want to see people starving to death on the street, there's nothing in a free society to prevent us from coming together to start a non-profit organization to provide, for example, outreach to those people who are starving to death on the street. So it does not have to be done through government services, and a free society does not mean that everything would be run for profit. All right, well, with that uh, uh, that particular objection out of the way, let's start taking a look at some of the other problems with this old argument that we need a government to provide such things as the roads. Uh, one of the problems with this argument is that it assumes uh, right off the bat that the system that we have now is the best possible system, that really you can tweak what the, the way that the government provides these road services, but, but ultimately they're doing a good job and a better job that could even possibly be conceived if this was left into the hands of private owners. And that, my friends, is a self-evident falsehood. And I think we all understand from our own daily commutes how just how ridiculous such a theory is. And I'm sure you probably don't have to go very far out of your way on your daily uh, traffic routes, assuming you do use these roads, to find evident examples of not only roads that are poorly maintained, if at all, or roads that are constantly being uh, dug up and paved over, as is the case here in Japan, where the entire construction industry, including, of course, the road maintenance industry, is nothing, nothing other than a government uh, boondoggle and a, a sinkhole for corruption and, uh, well, gangster influence, mo direct mafia influence. And, uh, and, of course, there's not only those types of problems with the roads, there's also, of course, the congestion and traffic, which we tend to think of, well, that's just a part of the, the roads themselves. There's nothing that can be done about that. But as we will see later in today's episode, there certainly is something that we can do about it, although it's generally not something that happens 
by a government uh, initiative for obvious well, reasons that will become obvious. But probably the most important thing to keep in mind is that the roads as they stand today are a death trap. The carnage that takes place on the roads of the United States and other countries around the world each and every day is almost unimaginable. Tens of thousands of people in the United States and hundreds of thousands around the world die every year in traffic-related accidents. And in fact, in 2004, traffic-related injuries was the ninth leading cause of death in the world. And by 2030, it is projected to be the fifth leading cause of death. The death that takes place on the government-provided roads is almost incalculable. It is a horrific thing to behold, and it does not need to take place in the, to the extent that it does. And this is something that we'll be able to address also in today's episode, so we have a lot on the plate to talk about. But again, it's important to understand that private roads do already exist, so it is not a radical idea to think about how a system of private roads could or would function in a free society. And in fact, this is something that has been talked about, thought about, written about, and uh, generally pontificated on in great detail by a great number of thinkers. And today we're going to be talk, uh, talking to a couple of those thinkers. And in fact, one of them is Walter Block, Dr. Walter Block, the professor of economics from Loyola University, who has been a guest on this program a couple of times now in the past. But just this past week, I had the chance to talk to him about his work on this very subject called The Privatization of Roads and Highways. For those of you who haven't read this book and who do have these types of questions, doubts, complaints, objections, and criticisms about the idea of the privatization of roads, I would wholeheartedly recommend this book because I can almost guarantee you every objection you can possibly think about has not only been covered in this book, but covered in this book in a great degree of detail. And we get some of that flavor from the conversation that I had with Dr. Block earlier this week. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt from this conversation where I talked to Dr. Block about the history of roads and how they were provided for without government uh, government monopolies in the past, and also at one of the major objections that a lot of people have to the idea of private roads. But as you point out, uh, in, in fact, the idea that roads have always been provided by government is itself not true. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the origins of, of roads back, uh, say, in the 19th century, before uh, governments really started to, to, uh, to monopolize that, that venture. Let's talk about how they were provided in the past. Well, you're quite right, and it even goes past the 19th century. Uh, my research shows that even in England, in like the 8th of the 9th century, there were turnpike roads. Certainly in Revolutionary War times and before the 1776, there were private turnpike roads. Uh, somebody would get up on his hind legs and, and make a road between A and B and then start charging people. Uh, they would amass the land, and uh, there was a turnpike road. You, you didn't have any... Um, a tar, you didn't have cement, obviously, it was just dirt roads. Uh, but what they would do is they would charge based on the width of the wagon wheel. If the wagon wheel was very narrow, think ice skates, they would charge more because you'd put ruts in the dirt road and, and was always given to, you know, flooding or whatever. Uh, whereas if you had a wider wheel, uh, think steam roller, steam uh, you know, you would flatten out the ruts in the road and they would charge you less because you were sort of helping the road and they would charge more for two axles than one axle and based on the number of horses. It, namely, it was a rational 
uh, enterprise, uh, you know, it was two or 300 years ago, so you're not going to expect uh, anything uh, modern, but uh, we had private roads. And uh, it was a viable system, except what happened was that the police, which was the monopoly police, uh, refused to uh, protect the road owners against the claim jumpers or people who would try to avoid the um, uh, the payments. And it, obviously, it couldn't be viable if, if the uh, police who seize a monopoly of this uh, and, and then refuse to protect private property rights. So then the government took over all the roads. But the idea, you're quite right that when libertarian when libertarians try to convert people to libertarianism, non-libertarians, one of the first objections will say, well, how about the roads and the highways and the streets? Uh, you can't do that by private enterprise. It must be a government thing. It's always been government. It hasn't. Uh, history shows that we've had private roads, which were viable commercial activities, and uh, presumably they would be competing. Now, I don't know how they would. I don't know that there'd be much of a death rate with horses, although uh, some, but not, nothing like with cars. I mean, horses go 10, 12, 15 miles an hour. Cars go 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. So obviously, there'd be more deaths. But uh, I imagine that there was, there was some sort of competition and, and, you know, try to make a better road and then, you know, fill in the potholes and fill in the ruts. And it was a, a, a viable enterprise. Uh, people have this prejudice against long, thin things like roads, but also sewage lines and water lines and electrical lines and telephone wires when we used to have telephone wires before the advent of uh, cell phones and uh, all sorts of things like that. And, and there's this prejudice, not only on roads, but on all long, long, thin things like that, that somehow the government uh, must do it because private enterprise can't. And uh, I think that that's, that's also a mistake. So there's a lot more to say about this. Unfortunately, we don't have an infinite amount of time, so perhaps we'll draw the conversation to a close. But before we do so, you bring up a very interesting point about uh, the way that the, the private road system of years past was undermined by the monopoly power of the uh, the police refusing, for example, to to uh, enact any or to enforce any laws on on these private roads. If we were to achieve a free market society for, for the roads specifically, um, wouldn't we face a similar problem again with, with government monopolies of power refusing to, to act to enforce rules of the road? Yeah. Uh, so I would advocate not only uh, private roads, but also advocate private police. Uh, you know, you're safer in Disney World than you are in Audubon Park in New York, in New Orleans or Central Park in, in Manhattan. Uh, I would say that if, I mean, if we had full free enterprise, where, you know, my motto is if it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. Privatize everything because everything either moves or doesn't move. Uh, we would also have private police. But we could still say let's uh, denationalize the roads. Let's get rid of road socialism. And uh, if the police was still there, well, then the, the police would have the obligation of making sure that the rules of the road of each owner were were upheld, or uh, each each road owner would have his own police, like Disney World has their own police. They have private police on Disney World, and if you act obstreperously, you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of ducks and mice and cats or whatever, all packing heat and being very polite to you, not like the city police, and saying, come with us, sir. Well, you know, uh, we could have that sort of a thing on, on the, uh, the, the nation's highways as well. 
Excellent point. I, I know I said I was going to draw the conversation to a close, but this actually does bring up a point that I know we should address, although I don't think it should need to be addressed. But but there was always the uh, the, the people out there who will um, who will raise uh, the objection that, well, what if we we are in this society of free free markets and free roads and there's only one road to this hospital and someone decides to charge one million dollars to travel upon it and oh then people will die because they can't get to the hospital or they will be forced to pay a million dollars um i I think this is a juvenile uh, type of argument but it is one that is always raised in this type of conversation so what would be the response to that well let me just say that more than half my book Uh, maybe 40% of it deals with how would it work and the other 60% deals with objections. There are 25, 30 different objections and this is certainly one. I call it the the blocked-in problem or the blocked-in threat. Uh, The way I see it is uh, I uh, buy a house and now I want to get out onto your road, you dirty rat, you, and you want to charge me a million dollars every time I, I want to get out or in. And now either I have to get a helicopter or I have to become a good pole vaulter to you know get over your road or something. See, right now when you buy a house, what you're going to do is get title insurance because you don't want someone else to come along and say, hey, the guy who sold you the house, guess what? He didn't really own it. I'm the right, uh, rightful owner and get out get out of my house. What you're going to do is have title insurance to make sure that the person who is selling you the house is really the owner of it. Well, under a regime of free enterprise and roads, in addition to title insurance, what you'll have is access insurance. Namely, before you build your house on the side of the road, or before you buy a house on the side of the road, you're going to Uh, inquire as to the private road owner, what's his policy? Is his policy such that um, uh, he's going to charge you a million dollars every time you want to come in or out or not? Uh, Or uh, is his policy much more reasonable? And I think his policy will be very reasonable because he wants you to have a house on the side of his road. I mean, if he builds in a road and nobody has houses or factories or car, uh, uh, whatever, uh, stores or anything on the side of his road and nobody uses his road, it's not going to be much of a road. Our road from New Orleans to Chicago, we're going to try to induce people, entice people to, yes, come build on on the side of our road so there'll be more people using our road. We'll be able to charge more. We will then uh, be forced by the marketplace to write a a contract with every person who's uh, contiguous to our road, uh, every neighbor, and say that we're not going to charge you any more than anyone else or whatever the formal contract is. And I'm not lawyer enough to know how we, our road, can be prevented from blockading people into their homes. But uh, I'm sure the lawyers can come up with some contract which will assure everyone that um, uh, this sort of a thing will not occur. Once again, that's Dr. Walter Block of WalterBlock.com. I will direct people to CorbettReport.com so they can listen to that conversation in its entirety and hear more about what we talked about. But more importantly, perhaps, I will direct them once again to his book, The The Privatization of Roads and Highways, which really is a compendium on this subject and really does cover many of the questions and objections that tend to get raised around this contentious issue. It shouldn't be contentious at all, given the history and even given some of the private roads that currently exist and function quite well in our modern society. But it is still a contentious issue for the people who cannot conceive of a world without government. 
But let's move on. Let's talk about another aspect of something that we touched on in our conversation with Dr. Block, but I'd like to explore more fully right now, and that is the issue of how privatization could open up the space for the reduction of some of that carnage on the streets that we talked about earlier. Once again, 40,000, upwards of 40,000 people dying every single year across the United States on the streets, which is a far cry from the number of people who are killed in terrorist incidents in the United States each year, although we see the massive amounts of hype and terroranda that are raised around that potential harm to people. But we never hear as a public policy issue the road, the roads themselves and what can be done to make them safer. But this is something that can and should be at the forefront of everyone's mind as, again, it is one of the leading causes of death in the world and something that is, by and large, preventable. This is where things start to become counterintuitive and really start to to be a bit surprising. And it's exactly at points like that that I think uh, we can learn the most about the way the world does work and the way it should work. So why don't we roll up our sleeves and delve straight into this? I'm going to direct people at this point to a very fascinating website called EqualityStreets.com, which is the website of Martin Cassini, who is a cap, uh, campaigner for traffic system reform in the UK specifically, although I think his ideas have wider applicability and in fact have been tested out in numerous countries around the world, as we shall see. And at the heart of this campaign is the idea that it is the traffic control systems themselves, the rules, regulations, and even the traffic lights and other things that govern our interactions on the streets that themselves are responsible for much of the carnage that we do see on the streets. Again, I think this is a counterintuitive idea in a lot of ways because a lot of people, if they were presented with the idea that if we actually removed some of the restrictions, rules, regulations, and even control systems that currently govern our interactions on the roads, well, people would think, well, that would just lead to anarchy. That would lead to chaos. That would lead to bedlam. Because unfortunately, in the minds of the general public, those terms are intimately linked, although they need not be, needless to say. But let's take a look at this idea, because again, this seems like a radical idea from uh, a foreign land that is almost inconceivable. But it certainly is not, and in fact, it's an idea that has been tested out in specific municipalities across the UK and around the globe, consistently showing that not only can congestion be significantly eased by the, the lifting of many of these rules and restrictions, but also that the injuries, accidents, and, and other mishaps that occur on the roads can not only not go up, but in fact, in many cases, be reduced. So this is a, uh, it sounds like a win-win situation for everyone, which might makes one wonder why this is not being implemented more uh, often, and that is a very good question, which we will come to later. But right now, let's take a look at this in some specific examples, because again, that's always the best way to get our minds wrapped around a subject. So we're going to watch a, a piece of a video that is on Martin Cassini's YouTube channel. This video is called Traffic Control, The Road to Nowhere, and is a general introduction to some of the ideas that have been talked about and implemented by Equality Streets and other like-minded organizations across the UK and in other countries besides. And uh, we're just going to watch a bit of this to get an idea of this. For people who are listening to the audio-only version of this podcast, there are images here which I think it would be highly uh, beneficial for you to be viewing. So if you can, I would suggest you switch over to the video version of this vodcast right now. But having said that, let's watch a little piece of this video from EqualityStreets.com. 
On a bus approaching King's Cross. It's outside rush hour, so we should sail through, especially if the claim is made about the congestion charge are true. But there's a reason why we're going nowhere fast. We complain about the traffic and blame other drivers, but could it be traffic controls that are the problem? There's so many red lights in London, I think. They need to be red for an eternity. They're a waste of time with traffic lights. We're waiting too long for nothing. Traffic lights make us stop when it's safe to go, defying common sense, extending journey times, and producing congestion which costs the economy 20 billion a year. Astonishingly, the current system by which we live and die has never been tested. Most of it was just invented in a fairly ad hoc manner and often without real consultation or testing. What we've got here is at one time there probably would have been a person stood there making decisions based on where the needs were. That person's been replaced by an automatic system which has no flexibility or discretion. Traffic lights are a very crude, if you like, metaphor for um, being regulated and audited told what to do rather than being able to take control of your own destiny. I think what we hate doing is being forced to do things that make no sense and the ultimate cry against bureaucracy is that this doesn't make sense or it's wasting time if you're blindly told to obey something or do something and you can't see the reason for it. Or you, you've been given a reason but that reason is clearly defective. Or inappropriate for Inapp the context of the moment. What happens when controls are absent? Is there a breakdown of civilization as we know it? flows a bit more freely, doesn't it? I mean, you just got to be a bit more careful on the junction, that's all. Here we are in Gossip Square, as it's known, in North Shopping, Sweden. Tell me about this square. I mean, we're just standing in the middle of the street. Yeah, but you're allowed to stand here because there are no regulations. It was a regular traffic crossing with traffic lights and quite a lot of accident reported. And now, since it has been redesigned and the traffic lights are removed. There has been no accidents at all since September 2000. Okay, motorists and able-bodied pedestrians might get on better without lights, but what if you're disabled or blind? The problem is the way drivers hog the road, dominate the street environment. Now we've allowed them to do that by all our highway engineering things and so on. But what we should be thinking about now is how we can encourage drivers that they have to drive in a different way. So let's start taking these things away. It might be traffic lights first, it might be road markings, the white line, all those sorts of things. And then look at what that does to driver behavior and what it does to opening up the urban environment for pedestrians. Well, with us in the studio now, Martin Cassini, who authored that uh report or polemic, I suppose, uh, and Robert Gifford, who's um, of the uh, Parliamentary Advisory Council on Transport Safety. At the very least, you can't argue on the emissions point and the pollution point. They're very bad traffic lights from that point of view. 
certainly there is a big question about whether traffic lights are the most effective way of managing traffic in an urban area. There's a common misconception that if you take away the lights, people are going to drive fast. Actually, the opposite is true. It's a counterintuitive idea, but it's the green light that encourages the speed, that licenses the aggression. If you take away the light and there's uncertainty at the junction, people naturally approach slowly and filter. That's Just as we do. That is absolutely right, isn't it? People sit there at a traffic light, revving the engine, waiting to get away, and if they come up to a, light where, a junction where there's no light, they, they do go well, slowly. A new hierarchy emerges with vulnerable road users at the top. Pedestrians in the shared space scenario, when there are no lights to dictate behaviour, are seen as fellow road users rather than obstacles in the way of the next light. That's a fair point. That's a fair, very fair point, and of course all motorists are pedestrians. <laughs> Once again, that's a video that was put together by Morgan Cassini of EqualityStreets.com. So earlier this week, it was my great pleasure to talk to Morgan Cassini, and that interview is now posted to CorbettReport.com. I really would recommend strongly that people do listen to this interview in its entirety. It really is, I think, an important interview because of how surprising it is. And this seems like one aspect of one problem of society generally. But the implications of the proposed solution to this problem, I think, are much, much wider because this rests on an underlying ideology that does challenge many of our fundamental underlying assumptions that have been really drilled into us from early age by our government indoctrination, that rules and regulations handed down from on high by regulators and legislators in, for, in foreign cities or cities uh, far away from where we reside is the really the way that we should govern inter interactions between human beings on this planet. It's a really fascinating idea and we have to see how this develops in the course of the conversation. So let's listen to a little bit of my conversation with Martin Cassini earlier this week. Once again, his website is equalitystreets.com, so I'll ask you to check that website out. Out. But we'll listen to a piece of this interview, starting with where I asked Mr. Cassini to tell us about some of the examples that his organization has been involved in, in bringing this idea of the lifting of traffic rules and restrictions in various parts of the UK. Well, I've, I'll just go back to the first, to, to when I saw the light about traffic lights. That was in Cambridge in the year 2000, Cambridge, England, not Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, where I was living at the time. And I approached a junction, a traffic lit junction, where normally I'd have to wait at least five minutes to get through this junction. Um, three entire signal cycle changes to get through. Um, and it was always congested, this junction. On this particular occasion, normal time of day, it was about lunchtime, actually. I sailed through. There was no congestion. There was a complete... Um, the place was deserted. I wondered suddenly if, I'd, if there was a bank holiday that no one had told me about. And then as I sailed through, I, I craned round and noticed that the traffic lights were out of action. Now, I'd often thought that traffic lights were badly timed, you know, with often you having approaching a, a green light and suddenly it would change and you'd have to screech to a halt or stop and wait, and often there'd be no conflicting traffic. But on that particular day, I suddenly realised that traffic lights per se are maybe bad news and are an unnecessary evil rather than a necessary evil. I mean, at multi-lane intersections at peak times, I concede there might be a use for traffic lights. But other than that, I think we can um, get by under our own steam um, using our, in our innate intelligence and our highly evolved ability to negotiate 
movement as, as human beings who basically have empathy towards each other, but the system prevents that. It disables that feeling of empathy. Um, it prevents infinite filtering opportunities and expressions of fellow feeling. So anyway, for years, I was trying to get a TV series off the ground about this subject, and I, I got very close on a number of occasions with the BBC, but they never quite went for it. Partly, I discovered in 2005 that they didn't believe that it could work. So then I started getting articles published, um, and then I did a Newsnight report, uh, which is a BBC Two sort of fairly flagship current affairs news program. Um, and on that program, I called for a trial to test the idea that we could cope far better without traffic lights. So, and then I kept an eye. Well, thanks to Google Alerts, I, I had a Google Alert um, with traffic signals out of action uh, named. And so I would get these alerts. And I, I got one from a place in, in the West Country called Portishead, quite near Bristol. In England and so I read the article got in touch the local press article got in touch immediately with the local councillor told him all about the um, my idea and he said great let's let's look into it so I went to see him showed him the video I'd made the case against traffic lights or the case for a no lights trial he showed it to the full chamber and 20 on the spot 26 out of 27 councillors agreed to switching off the traffic lights. So we switched them off. We just bag we bagged them over and, and switched them off on the 14th of September, 2009. And there was an instant change. I mean, you've probably seen the, the little video on YouTube about Porter's head, the traffic lights trial. Um, from excessive queues and ridiculous amounts of traffic and pollution, suddenly, there was silence in the centre, and there were some rather heartwarming interviews with uh, people on the street, from school children to pensioners, and all were absolutely delighted at the transformation that had occurred thanks to the switching off of the signals. One woman timed her journey. She had been a sceptic. She spoke to me before the lights went off, she said it won't work. People won't give way to each other. She came, I asked her to come back to me the next day, which she did. And she said, yes, I'll have to eat my hat because I said she might have to. And she had timed her journey. Normally it took her 20 minutes to get home from work. On this occasion, without the lights, five minutes. And it did not lead to any injuries or accidents, did it? No accidents. It, it more than okay. Monitoring over quite a long period. Actually, it was nine months, then eighteen months, and the signals were uh, removed after eighteen months. So scientific monitoring. We had CCTV cameras on every approach, and and the traffic engineering firm that I worked with had, had done you know set up the trial and monitored it properly. Um, so monitoring showed that journey times had fallen by over half with no loss of safety. There, were, there was a minor shunt when the BBC film crew was on site and someone, I think, was distracted by the film crew and just tapped into the car in front, but no personal injury accidents whatsoever. Not that there were many before, but the next best um, 
traffic lights off scheme, which has gone permanent, is in, in point. And that's really the flagship um, example of this type of redesign of the junction where you'd have no priority and you create a, a streetscape to express a social as distinct from traffic engineering context there in point. And they used to have quite a number of accidents with pedestrians, but since the lights have been switched off and the streetscape has been redesigned, they haven't had a single accident, as can be seen in the video. If you Google point and regenerated or go to YouTube and just put in point and P-O-Y-N-T-O-N, then you find the video and it's, um, it's well, as people have said, it's, it's heartwarming to see it. It's inspiring, really. Uh, it, it's at this point that I will also direct people to your two-part video series on your YouTube channel, Roads Unfit for People, Roads Fit for People. I'll include the links to those videos in the show notes for this interview so that people can watch that for themselves and find out more about the Portishead trial, for example. Just, uh, again, fascinating to watch. And it, it, one, uh, I could understand that people might be skeptical out there until they see it with their own eyes. So I, I wholeheartedly encourage people to do that. And it is, uh, it really is heartwarming to see just such a... a, a uh, uh, an almost unthinkable change having such an incredible impact on the way that people not only interact on the roads but as uh, interact as human beings it's it's an interesting idea and you've pointed this out a couple of times already so let's let's dwell on that for a moment the the traffic control systems have have arisen out of a traffic engineering context but uh, but equality streets is about a social construct can you tell us about that social construct that informs this ideology and what can it tell us about about the broader context of, of society and the way that it's regulated by these types of uh, rules and, and uh, laws that govern our interactions. Um, the original uh, meaning of anarchism is self-government. It was given a bad name in the 20s, unfortunately, but it, and it, it has retained that bad label. Um, but there's a form of politics called minarchism, which is sort of uh, mini anarchism and it so it means that you grant that there is a need for, um, gov for inter government intervention for state intervention in certain fields of, of, of um, society you know some people can't uh, look after themselves there's a need for welfare without question you know people there are needy people around so you need some state support some state help but Minarchism is about minimal state intervention. And so it maximizes our own our innate ability to cooperate and to feel empathy for our fellow human beings and to self-regulate. So the, the traffic, uh, you know, the idea of equality streets um, does really symbolize that wider idea of self-control being a better um, model, if you like, for organizing society than state control in every sphere. Um, interestingly, in this country, in, in the UK, um, the conservative, which is the right-wing side of the uh, political spectrum, they, they tend to be more interested in my ideas, which sort of troubles me, actually, because my sympathy is with a fairer distribution of wealth. Um, so I'm, I have more sympathies to the, with, on, with the left side, but 
I've an old friend of mine who is a, in the House of Lords in England. She's been a Labour firebrand all her life, and I talk. I went to see her to talk about these ideas, and she got the idea within minutes. But she said you'd have trouble persuading Labour because Labour likes regulation, and unfortunately, it's, a, it's an odd thing about socialism that they don't seem to trust the individual to do the right thing. Um, I'm, I mean, I sort of believe in benevolent dictatorship in a way, you know, the platonic idea. Uh, and I don't think that's ever been tried. But so minichism is, is sort of a concept that comes close to that. I mean, you do need a strong, intelligent person at the head of things. I mean, I don't think democracy, I mean, democracy might be the least bad system that exists currently, but it's not the ideal system because all sorts of self-interest groups get involved I mean, as now, for instance, Westminster City Council have asked me to make some videos for them about the cycling changes or the, the support for um, the, the cycling strategy that the government is introducing. They're spending about £94 million on a cycling strategy to create more cycle lanes and make the roads safer for cycling. Well, to me, that's supporting a special interest group. I would, you know, my thing is to say, look, spend that money on equality for all. You know, we all have an equal right to the road space. Let's all, let's design the road network to reflect that social context so that we can all interact as human beings. Once again, Martin Cassini of equalitystreets.com. And I hope people are starting to grasp just how important this issue is to give us that microcosmic example by which we can grasp the larger principle. And that larger principle does come back to the idea that human beings interacting individually and voluntarily can negotiate in much more reasonable ways than they can when they are placed into a system of rules, regulations, restrictions, controls, and laws that have been handed down by lawmakers in faraway places and often in faraway times that are supposed to govern the interactions of everyone within a certain arbitrarily defined geographical location. It is an idea that should be very intuitive to us, but it is not, because our intuitions unfortunately have been so twisted by our indoctrination throughout our life. But again, I think it is important for us to reflect on just how fundamental this idea really is, and how, how deeply it strikes at the nerve of what I think the problem in our society is in so many different ways. Because when we are placed in a system of rules, regulations, and controls, as we are, for example, in the road context by the, the speed limits and the traffic lights and the other things that govern our interaction on the streets, we do tend to think of other people within that system as merely obstacles on the road who are in our way if we are the ones who have been given the priority by the system at hand. So we are the ones with the green light. Therefore, anyone who gets in our way is the obstacle. And if they get hit and if they die, well, it isn't our fault. And that is a sick morality and twisted morality that would not and does not develop in 
any of the other interactions that we can think of that are not so strictly ruled, regulated, and defined. As, for example, in the situations where we're walking in a crowded hallway or in a crowded train concourse or what have you, the number of collisions and, and accidents and people bumping into each other and people becoming angry at each other is much, much less than what we would see on the streets. And I think this really does have to be chalked down to that fundamental psychology that we are steeped in. Once again, when we are placed in positions where other people are merely obstacles to be negotiated within a system of priorities that has been handed down by legislation, then we really do live down to the lowest common denominator. But if we are placed in a situation where every individual that we interact with is an individual human being who has no greater or no less priority in that situation, and we have to negotiate as individuals within the context of that moment our interaction with each other, then we do start to see other people as human beings to be negotiated with. We live up to our potential as human beings when placed in that context. We live down to our potential as the lowest common denominator when we are placed in the opposite context of rules, restrictions, and regulations. Once again, this is a very profound idea, and it does have direct uh, ap applicability that we can actually see in the context of the roads, which is why I think this is a very interesting uh, idea. And once again, I will recommend people look at equalitystreets.com and the work they've put out. There are a number of different videos that they have put out, and uh, more broadly, you can find many videos on YouTube that you will never come across unless you start looking for them. Trust me, I've, I've experienced that myself as I've come across this idea in recent weeks, but video after video showing that the lack of, for example, traffic controls uh, uh, regulating intersections consistently reduces congestion and accidents. Again, something that per perhaps is counterintuitive, but perhaps shouldn't be at all. And again, something that comes from an underlying ethos and philosophy that I think is extremely important for us to understand. As people who are advocating freedom, should be, I believe, advocating that we as human beings really do have the potential to live up to that system where we are not defined by the rules and restrictions and regulations that govern our interactions, but where every single interaction that we have with another human being is with a human being as human being, not a human being as obstacle to be avoided or, or uh, obstacle in the way, but as an actual human being that we must negotiate with on an individual basis. And that, my friends, is what a free society is all about. The negotiations of individuals voluntarily interacting with each other. It is something that we do every single day, whether we know it or not, thousands of times with the people around us, but it's something that, unfortunately, we've been taught to believe is unthinkable within certain realms, such as on the streets. Well, friends, I think we're going to leave things there for today. Once again, I hope you will follow some of the links from the show notes of today's episode to explore this idea and this concept in more detail. As I say, I think it goes right to the heart of many of the things that we are advocating when we talk about what a free society is and what humanity could become in that free society. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for this week's edition of the podcast and asking you to join me again next week. Let me take you down Equality Street. You never know the people you meet. At the end of the street is a golden gate. Let it love, it don't let it hate, no.